Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. My essay this week is called, If Asked, Don't Tell, Secrecy in Jesus. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, March the 2nd, 2014. This Sunday, March 2nd, is the last week in the season of Epiphany. The following week, we begin 40 days of Lent with Ash Wednesday. The word Epiphany means disclosure, manifestation, unveiling, or appearance. So, how fitting that Matthew 17 for this week describes one of the greatest epiphanies ever, the transfiguration of Jesus complete with blinding light, a heavenly voice, and visions of Moses and Elijah. But how strange that this disclosure concludes in all three synoptic gospels with a command of secrecy. Jesus told his disciples after the transfiguration, don't tell anyone what you have seen. Back in 1901, the German Lutheran scholar George Friedrich Edward William Reddy published a book called The Messianic Secret that explored a motif that's present in all four Gospels and conspicuously prominent in Mark. The phrase stuck, and ever since then, Messianic Secret has been scholarly shorthand for a mysterious phenomenon in the Gospels. Depending on how you count them, about 15 different times in the Gospels, Jesus explicitly suppresses knowledge about his identity. There are at least 13 occurrences in Mark alone. Jesus conceals knowledge about himself in several different ways. Several times he silenced the evil spirits that he exercised. Quote, he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. He ordered his own disciples to keep silent about what they had experienced. Specifically, after Peter's confession of Christ as Messiah and after the transfiguration. Jesus also told some of the people he had healed to keep silent. Quote, Jesus sent him away with a strong warning. See to it that you don't tell this to anyone. In private discussions away from the crowds, Jesus told his disciples that he, quote, explained everything about the secret of the kingdom to them whereas those on the outside got only obfuscating parables. And those parables, we read in another place, both reveal and hide truth at the same time. When he traveled, sometimes Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were. In John 7, for example, he went to the Feast of Tabernacles in secret in order to hide his identity. In the Beatitudes of Matthew 6, Jesus taught us to give, 
to pray, and to fast, all in secret. God the Father, he says, will see what is done in secret. There are also broader corollaries to these specific examples. Until he burst onto the public scene for three years of ministry, Jesus lived for 30 years in total obscurity, a secret life about which we know nothing at all. Paul told the Corinthians, the Ephesians, and the Colossians that the gospel was a secret or a mystery that had been revealed. The earliest Christians who worship in the catacombs of Rome were criticized by pagans for their secret meetings and bizarre rituals, rumored to include cannibalism, incest, and infanticide. They were people of the periphery, antisocial, avoiding the theater and the games, and apolitical, refusing to run for office. The Christians, griped the critic Cassius, do not understand their civic duty. There were at least some justification for the charge of secrecy. Early baptismal instruction lasted many months, during which time the full gospel was deliberately kept secret from the baptismal candidates. Why all this secrecy? What does it mean in its original context and for us today? Ever since Rady in 1901, scholars have debated every aspect of the secrecy motif. Some people even think it's an overreading or much ado about nothing. It might have been a political strategy by Jesus to avoid unwanted attention from the Roman authorities. There's also a sense that he was biding his time and that he didn't want any premature ending to his mission. But neither of these explain why Jesus is such a why secrecy is such a prominent literary theme in Mark. A few years ago, I read a book by Jonathan Mailsick called Secret Faith in the Public Square an argument for the concealment of Christian identity. The title sounds crazy, which is one reason it attracted me, until you consider the breadth and depth of the secrecy motif in the Gospels. Melzik commends a simple theme from Scripture. Matthew 6, 1 and 6, Beware of practicing your piety before others, in order to be seen by them. He laments the enormous damage done to the faith by its putative success in society. For many American believers, faith is a form of currency, political, economic, or social, by which they accrue personal benefits. Think, for example, of a politician who makes sure that voters know that he attends church. Music's response to this problem is counterintuitive. 
He tries to show how deliberate secrecy about one's faith is a real, though underemphasized, theme in Christian theological, liturgical, and spiritual tradition. To save our faith, we must veil it from others. He has in mind Christianity in America, and especially the bourgeoisie and cosmopolitan evangelicals who enjoy and strive for social privileges by wearing faith on their sleeves. Only by a return to secrecy, by which Maelsic means intentional concealment of knowledge from another person, can American Christianity be saved from its opportunistic impulse to exploit the gospel for social gain. Maelsic devotes two chapters each to three Christians who commend Christian secrecy. Cyril of Jerusalem's catechetical practices withheld knowledge of the sacraments until after baptism. Kierkegaard's book, Works of Love, argues that genuinely selfless acts must be hidden in order to avoid the quid pro quo of praise. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer once wrote that the Christian cause will be a silent and hidden affair. So says Maelsic, concealing one's Christian identity is not an isolated tradition. His book reminded me of the poem by Emily Dixon, Dickinson called Tell It Slant. Tell all the truth but tell it slant. Success in circuit lies. Too bright for mind's infirm intent, the truth's superb surprise. As lightning to the children eased with explanation kind, the truth must dazzle gradually, or every man be blind. When I mention Maelzig's book to a church leader who speaks all around the country, he scoffed. I should have known better. But, our, but in our world of total information and hype, I think he might be on to something. For books this week, I review a title called Hanging Man, The Arrest of Ai Weiwei. The author is Barnaby Martin. New York, Faber and Faber, 2013, 245 pages. In April of 2011, Ai Weiwei was in the Beijing airport waiting for his flight to Hong Kong when police slipped a black sack over his head and threw him into a car. Thus began 81 days of detention and interrogation for one of China's most outspoken dissidents. He was released that July under house arrest, a situation that began in fear and paranoia, but reached a measure of normalcy by September. Normal, that is, for a man who prior to the detention had his studio bulldozed, was severely beaten, and always assumes that he's under permanent surveillance. Ai Weiwei's art has been featured around the world. He's done painting, sculpture, film, 
architecture, photography, books, video, blogging, and virtually any other medium you might imagine. In October 2011, Art Review Magazine named him the number one artist in the world in their annual Top 100. Most of all, though, he's been a tireless critic with a vast following. Barnaby Martin interviewed Weiwei right after his release. This book tries to capture that moment in time and to shine a light on modern China. Whatever economic progress China has made, Ai Weiwei's abduction shows that it's still not a country with transparency, accountability, freedom of expression, or rule of law. Rather, there's no guarantee against arbitrary detention without any charges or trial. Barnaby Martin suggests several conclusions. Ai Weiwei remains a huge problem for China, and there's clearly internal disagreement in the Communist Party about what to do with him. He's angered them enough to detain him, but they were ambivalent enough to release him. You might say this represents at least some progress in the last 20 years. Martin also suggests that most of China's rank and file are just going through the motions and that they've lost the faith. Experts disagree, of course. For his own self, Ai Weiwei says that the opaque machinations of the party are impossible to predict. In addition to this book, I highly recommend the 90-minute documentary film called Ai Weiwei, Never Sorry, from 2012, also reviewed at Journey with Jesus. Once again, the author is Barnaby Martin. The title, Hanging Man, The Arrest of Ai Weiwei. For film this week, I review a movie from 2013. It's called The Way Way Back. It can be very difficult to be a teenager, especially with dysfunctional parents. 14-year-old Duncan has to spend the summer with his mother and her boyfriend Trent, played by Steve Carroll, at the latter's beach cottage. Duncan has good reasons to be sulky and silent. Trent is an overbearing jerk. Their neighbor is certifiably crazy, but on message when she gloats that the place is a summer camp for adults. Duncan finds some solace with Susanna, who nonetheless finds him a mystery. Do you want me to keep talking, or are you going to say something? Duncan finds his redemption with the crazy manager of a retro water park, who takes the awkward teenager under his summer care. Water Whiz, says Duncan, is the only place I'm happy. It's not much, but that's what you get in a poignant coming-of-age film. The Way, Way Back For poetry this week, we've posted a poem by one of my favorite poets, Edwina Gately. 
The title of the poem is called Letting Go. It's from her book, There Was No Path, So I Trod One. It is time to go. I can smell it, breathe it, touch it, and something in me trembles. I will not cry, only sit bewildered, brave and helpless, that it is time, time to go, time to step out of the world I shaped and watched become, time to let go of the status and the admiration, time to go. To turn my back on a life that throbbed with my vigor and a spirit that soared through my tears. Time to go from all I am to all I have not yet become. Edwina Gately, Letting Go. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, March the 2nd, 2014. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.